Chief Justice Roberts came to the court claiming to be an umpire, uh, swearing allegiance to precedent and deferring to the legislative branches. And while uh, Amy and I are in agreement that liberals won a bunch of cases, uh, important cases, this term, I think this term is going to be defined primarily by Citizens United in the historical and legal memory. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today. I'm Craig Williams from misty Southern California. Yeah, this is Bob Ambrogi from a uh, very hot and sweltering uh, Boston, Massachusetts, uh, where I write a blog called Law Sites and also another blog called Media Law. And I write a blog called May It Please the Court. I have a book out called How to Get Sued. Bob, we'd like to thank our sponsors, SunTrust, who offers private wealth management solutions for attorneys and legal firms at suntrust.com slash law, and Clio, a web-based practice management software program for lawyers at goclio.com. Well, it's the end of another Supreme Court term, uh, a fairly momentous term by by some accounts. There were some landmark decisions that came down just at the end of the term as well as uh, throughout the throughout the year. Two rulings that garnered a lot of attention just in uh, recent weeks were the gun rights case in McDonald versus Chicago and the uh, big patent law case, well, uh, much anticipated patent law case of Bilski versus Kapos. Well, and today we're going to be taking a look on Lawyer to Lawyer at the end of the term roundup and rulings, touch on the Elena Kagan confirmation hearings, and take a look back at the Supreme Court's term over the last session. Helping us do that today will be two guests. First uh, first of all, a returning guest, Adam Winkler. Adam is a constitutional law specialist from UCLA Law School, where his scholarship has touched on a variety of issues, including the right to bear arms voting rights, corporate free speech, and judicial independence. His work was cited extensively in briefs submitted to the Supreme Court in the 2008 Second Amendment case of District of Columbia versus Heller. Adam also writes for the Huffington Post and the Daily Beast. And uh, on the Daily Beast, he uh, currently uh, has a post on the Supreme Court's term in review entitled, The Supreme Court Turns Left. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer, Adam Winkler. Thanks so much for having me. And Bob, our next guest is also a returning guest, Amy Howe. She's the editor of SCOTUS Blog, a blog devoted to the workings of the United States Supreme Court. She's also a partner in Howe and Russell, the country's only Supreme Court litigation boutique. And she teaches Supreme Court litigation at Harvard and Stanford Law Schools. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer, Amy. Thanks for inviting me. Well, let's well, give uh, a... Go ahead, Bob. <laughs> I was going to say let's let's start off by uh, by discussing uh, discussing the term, taking an overview of the term. Uh, Adam, I just want to start with you. I mean, you've you've kind of uh, in your piece uh, in the Daily Beast taken uh, perhaps a, a different perspective on the term than has been uh, perhaps the conventional wisdom, at least uh, expressed on uh, editorial pages of the New York Times uh, and elsewhere. Uh, tell us how you view the term. 
Well, there's no doubt that the court's conservatives scored several major victories, most notably the one decision that the term will be known for uh, for many years to come, which is the Citizens United case that loosened restrictions on corporate spending in elections and earning the justices a rare State of the Union rebuke from the president. But the liberals on the court uh, and the moderates won more than their fair share of cases this year, and viewing the court solely through the lens of Citizens United would give us the a distorted view. It would tell us that the court is radically turning to uh, the right when uh, on a number of different fronts, especially in the areas of uh, criminal defendants' rights, uh, some areas relating to religion uh, and a variety of property rights, immigration law, uh, etc. Liberals on the court won a number of major, major decisions uh, that will have a major influence on the law. Uh, and so the court, it, it doesn't, it's not so much that the court has turned to the left, it's that Maybe the turn to the right isn't quite as profound as uh, one would imagine listening to the uh, Democratic senators in the Elena Kagan confirmation hearings. Well, Amy, let's take a look at the uh, McDonald versus Chicago case. It's a uh, 5-4 majority opinion. How does this rank in the series of decisions from the Supreme Court, and what is it all about? Well, this is was a challenge to the city of Chicago's ban on the possession of handguns, and This case was filed literally within hours of the court's decision two years ago in District of Columbia versus Heller striking down the District of Columbia's gun ban. And the question was whether or not the Second Amendment applies to cities and states. And the court held very decisively uh, in McDonald versus City of Chicago that gun ownership is a fundamental Second Amendment right. And this was a a closely divided court. It was a 5-4 vote as an opinion by Samuel Alito, um, that the court did make clear in its opinion that the decision isn't going to strike down every decision regulating firearms. It looks like we're going to be back to the courts, the the lower courts are going to have to work out what kinds of restrictions can cities and states place on guns in the future. But but by declaring gun ownership to be a fundamental Second Second Amendment right, the, the court took another big step. Adam, you were involved in Heller. How does this, uh, the McDonald opinion, shape up for you? Well, this was obviously an important decision for gun rights in the sense that it has expanded the right to keep and bear arms uh, for personal self-defense in the home, recognized in District of Columbia versus Heller, to all state and local laws. So it will open up for challenge um, all of the 20,000 gun control laws the NRA likes to say uh, Americans and gun owners have to face uh, across the nation. Uh, but I think primary, the primary effect will be on lawyers and creating a lot of lawsuits, but not so much on gun control. Uh, Before the Heller case, the Supreme Court said the Second Amendment protects a right of individuals to have guns as part of a militia, a state-run militia, uh, and not an individual right for personal self-defense, and had no effect on uh, gun control. Uh, limit provided no limits on gun control. Now the court has invigorated the right to bear arms by recognizing it as an individual right unattached and unrelated to militia service, but yet the court has gone out of its way in both the Heller decision and again reemphasized in the Justice Alito's opinion for the court in McDonald, uh, emphasizing that most forms of gun control remain constitutionally permissible. Since I think an interesting fact here is that since the Heller case, there have been almost 200 lawsuits uh, challenging uh, gun control laws, uh, federal gun control laws, as violating this uh, Second Amendment right to bear arms. And 
Uh, not a single law other than the D.C. law struck down in Heller, and in the future, the Chicago law will be struck down probably by the lower court on remand. But no other law has been invalidated. No other gun control law has been invalidated on the basis of that right. So I expect more of the same. We're going to see maybe a few laws here and there overturned, um, but the vast majority of gun control laws will survive constitutional scrutiny. So McDonald's a big win for gun rights in one sense by opening up the possibility of challenging gun laws across the nation. But gun control also emerged as a major victor in the McDonald case. One of the uh, most anticipated cases, at least among some legal professionals of, of the term, was the Bilski uh, patent law case. Uh, and the Supreme Court kept us waiting pretty much until the 11th hour for its decision in that. Uh, and uh, a lot of corners are, are saying that uh, what they finally came out with was somewhat of a disappointment. Amy, do you have any uh, thoughts on the Bilski case? That's right. I mean, I'm not a patent lawyer, but you know, the, the case was argued back in November, I believe. And so the, the anticipation kept building and building. And every time the court announced opinions, the patent lawyers, you know, starting in the spring, were sitting on the edge of their seats waiting for the decision. And based on, you know, this is one of the things that Supreme Court lawyers do, based on sort of the, the pattern of who was writing opinions, uh, that it was expected that that Justice Stevens was, you know, could well be writing the opinion in the Bilski case, and that was was not regarded as a good thing for the the Federal Circuit's decision. But in the end, it, it, it he wasn't writing, and it did seem to be a little bit of a fizzle. And, and he ended up writing a concurrence that was perhaps what a lot of people hoped <laughs> the majority opinion might be. Exactly, exactly. And you know, there perhaps at one point it, it may well have been a majority opinion. You you know, you you don't know until these things come out. How how the justices voted, so that he may well have been writing the majority opinion at, at one point in its life. Adam, do you have any thoughts on uh, Bilski? Well, uh, Bilski was important for patent lawyers, and largely because of concerns about uh, what the case would mean for the future of uh, patentable subject matter. Uh, in particular, something like uh, gene patents uh, or various kinds of tests designed to um, uh, detect uh, human gene sequences and whatnot that some courts have held uh, to be patentable. Uh, and there were those who were hoping that this case would restrict the scope of patentable subject matter so that something like human genes, uh, when that case would come up, maybe wouldn't be patentable um, or the tests for discovering particular gene sequences wouldn't be patentable. Uh, but instead, the court really held that the patent system was an open, flexible, and inclusive of all forms of innovation. And so um, it didn't provide that encouragement that some were looking for in terms of limitations on what could be patentable. How do you believe that that, uh, you think that decision will have any effect on patent litigation? Well, I believe it will by, by suggesting that the patent system is to be used flexibly uh, for, uh, and to allow many forms of innovations to be patented. Um, but I think uh, the ultimate effect of the case remains to be seen. What lower courts do with the case, uh, uh, as you mentioned uh, to begin, uh, people were expecting fireworks and we got mostly fizzle. Amy, do you see uh, any type of patent reform coming out of Congress to address Bilski? Oh gosh, I, to be honest, I, I just don't know. I mean, I think that it may well be, you know, Congress is dealing with so many things right now that, you know, they've got immigration, they've got financial regulatory reform. It, it could well be that that patent reform is is pretty low on Congress's agenda, and, and it could 
could get pushed down the road quite a bit even if it does happen. The the New York Times editorial this weekend about the Supreme Court term suggests uh, you know that this was this was really kind of a a Roberts term uh, and that it was. Uh, uh, a term in in which uh, the conservative bloc uh, demonstrated that it's uh, well, as I read the Times editorial, demonstrated that it's that it's willing to make law despite what it talks about in terms of the role of the court. Uh, it, and a lot is made of of the decision in Citizens United. Uh, Amy, how do you characterize the term? I mean, do you, do you think that the New York Times gets it right in in its characterization of what happened over the past year? Well, I think I mean. One thing is indisputable, and that is that the Chief Justice was in the majority 92% of the time. So this term, it really was his court. And this goes back to what Adam was talking about when we started the show. I mean, I think you can look at sort of the number of cases, and, and there were quite a few in which liberals were very happy with the outcome. Cases like, you know, Stop the Beach, uh, which was the rejecting the idea that the Florida Supreme Court had affected a judicial taking in dealing with the, the state of Florida's replenishment of, of the beach in, in Florida, or Graham versus Florida, which struck down a Florida law providing for life sentences without parole for, for juveniles. Um, but then I think you also, if you look at the weight of some of the court's decisions, or you know, Citizens United is the most obvious one. It, it was the blockbuster of the term, and I think it really got a lot of criticism in particular because there was a sense that the court in that case, the Roberts Court, was reaching out to decide an issue that wasn't really before it and that it certainly didn't need to decide. You know, back in March of 2009, it heard oral argument in the case, and then instead of deciding the case then, asked for new briefing and for re-argument, and then that's when it decided that corporations had a First Amendment right to spend their own money on political advertising. And so... You know, I think that there were some decisions that, that liberals could point to as sort of judicial activism on the part of the court. But then some of the other decisions, even some of the decisions that were a little bit narrower, like stop the beach, they ultimately ruled in favor of the state and said, no, this particular, this particular circumstance is not a judicial taking. But four justices in that case would have held that there is such a thing as a judicial taking. And so the, the more liberal justices chided them in an opinion and said, you know, we don't, we don't need to decide that question. Um, so I think that there are a core set of issues that the chief justice cares about. And he knows that he's going to be around for a long time. He's, he's in his mid-50s right now. He could very well be on the court for another three decades, much like Justice John Paul Stevens, who retired this term after you know, decades on the bench. And so he can afford to do some of the, you know, to take to take baby steps to sort of move towards the result that he's looking for in some of these cases. I would imagine that there's no one less happy about that New York Times uh, end of term summary than Chief Justice Roberts himself. Chief Justice Roberts came to the court claiming to be an umpire, uh, swearing allegiance to precedent and deferring to the legislative branches. And while uh, Amy and I are in agreement that liberals won a bunch of cases, uh, important cases, this term, I think this term is going to be defined primarily by Citizens United in the historical and legal memory. Uh, and uh, this decision was one where uh, the court did not seem to be calling balls and strikes. Uh, it was one where the court, as Amy says, reached out to hear an issue that the uh, 
the parties themselves did not even raise, which was the constitutionality of these uh, federal laws restricting uh, corporate spending of general treasury funds to influence federal elections. Uh, the court reached out to get to hear that uh, question, overturned longstanding precedent that said that lawmakers could restrict corporations in this way and protect the political process from uh, uh, the misspending of other people's money by corporate executives. Um, and I think this case really um, is starting to fundamentally reshape the debate about um, judicial activism in America. For years, the, the conservatives have been saying that judicial activism is something that happens on the right, something that, uh, sorry, something that happens on the left, something that liberals do. Uh, and yet here, a conservative court uh, overturned longstanding precedent, refused to defer to the elected branches, reached out to hear an issue that it didn't have to. Um, and I think it's very telling in the Kagan confirmation hearings, yeah. We heard many more claims that the court was activist coming from the left side than we heard from the right side. And these charges, in light of the incredible unpopularity of the Citizens United decision, uh, these charges are sticking. And it is no longer so easy for court, for the conservatives to say, it's the lefties who are judicial activists, and we are just uh, applying the law uh, and acting as umpires, as Roberts had hoped. There's, you know, two things. I, uh, first of all, the, the, this case is, as Adam said, definitely going to be remembered. This term is definitely going to be remembered for Citizens United. And the Citizens United decision and then President Obama's criticism of it at the State of the Union has really sort of opened up a, a, not a war, but, but a, a, a serious sort of point of tension between the Supreme Court and the Obama administration. The Obama administration made no bones about the fact that it is going to run on Citizens United and the Roberts Court as judicial activists in the midterm elections. And then, as Adam also said at the Kagan confirmation hearings, she very firmly rejected the umpire metaphor. She said, you know, the reason that these cases are at the Supreme Court is because they're hard cases. And so, yeah, there may well be different ways of, of looking at them. You, you, you can't, this is not just a question of applying law to facts. If it were just a question of applying law to facts, it probably wouldn't be before us. Well, was that case an anomaly or were there other cases in which the court uh, was uh, more activist than, it, than it's professed to be in the past? I think Citizens United is the, the primary example. I mean, I, you know, Graham versus Florida, if, or not Graham versus Florida, I'm sorry, Stop the Beach, if they could have gotten, you know, five votes for the idea that there is a judicial taking, you know, I, I think that they probably would have included that in the majority opinion, but they, they simply weren't able to do it. You know, there's also the, uh, you know, the, the free enterprise fund decision had the important, the, the potential to be an, an important separation of powers case. And in the end, it too was a little bit of a, a fizzle that, that, you know, they held that the sort of structure of this board, which was designed to oversee the accounting industry was unconstitutional, but they didn't fix it by knocking out the board altogether, as the, the plaintiffs in that case would have preferred that they, they would have done. They just sort of you know, restructured the, the appointments process. They, they merely they struck down one provision of the law rather than the whole board. And it doesn't have much of an immediate impact, but it could have a longer-term effect on similarly situated federal officials and other attempts by Congress to create independent agencies that are insulated from presidential control. So again, this may be you know, not an example of a, a big 
step of judicial activism, but perhaps baby steps. Where do you think the next steps will be going? What, Adam, where do you see the court heading in the future? Well, um, it would be interesting to see what kind of judicial philosophy uh, Elena Kagan brings to the court, um, how she replaces uh, J- uh, Associate Justice John Paul Stevens now that uh, she's going to uh, take his seat. Um, also remains to be seen if there's some more um, resignations to come from the court. Uh, one has to suspect that Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, is next on the list of justices who would like to retire and probably wants to retire uh, during the Obama administration to see to it that she can be replaced by a democratically elected president. Uh, so uh, the effect of two new justices, certainly one and maybe a second one, and obviously we have uh, Sotomayor who was appointed last year, uh, I think it remains to be seen. I think the basic 5-4 split on the court with five more or less conservative uh, justices on one side and four more or less liberal or conservative justices on the other side uh, will continue and will continue uh, uh, for years to come. Uh, but well, who knows? Uh, Elena Kagan, for instance, we didn't learn a lot about her judicial philosophy in the confirmation hearings, uh, perhaps because of the nature of the confirmation process today. Uh, we learned more about the judicial philosophy of, I don't know, Simon Cowell uh, of American Idol than we would of Elena Kagan uh, in these kinds of hearings. But I think that she will be someone who, uh, based on her scholarship, will be perhaps more of a free speech hawk than Justice Stevens was. Um, I wouldn't have even been shocked that uh, if she had been on the court, if she had ruled with the majority in the Citizens United case um, because of her strong feelings on free speech issues and uh, her previously expressed um, skepticism towards campaign finance regulation uh, in general. But in terms of large patterns, Hard to say, other than the basic uh, liberal conservative divide, what the court does will really depend on what cases the court takes. And of course, that's uh, hard to predict. We, uh, we need to take a short break. And uh, when we return, we'll be looking back at the term in the Supreme Court term in review and looking ahead to the fate of Elena Kagan. Has the recent economic climate affected the financial goals of your firm? Get back on track with help from SunTrust. Our private wealth management legal specialty group works solely with lawyers and their firms to deliver unique solutions designed for the legal community. SunTrust advisors give you sound guidance on everything from maximizing cash flow and waiting through benefits planning to understanding how to retain attorneys and staff. Learn more at www.suntrust.com legal. SunTrust. Live solid. Bank solid. SunTrust Bank. Member FDIC. Imagine how much easier managing your practice would be if your practice management software was web-based. Your practice would be available anywhere you have an internet connection, completely secure, backed up continuously, and most importantly, easy to use, allowing you to spend your valuable time building your practice instead of managing technology. Start simplifying your practice today with Clio. Sign up for a free, fully functional 30-day trial at www. .goclio.com. Use promotional code L2L for a 25% discount. Engage your brain. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and listen to all the great legal podcasts. It's the office calling again. Don't answer it. Why not? 
I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, yeah. I need to do that, too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. That's perfect. The office can wait. Uh, welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi, and my co-host, Jay Craig Williams, and I are speaking with Adam Winkler, a constitutional law scholar at UCLA Law School, and Amy Howe, a lawyer and editor of SCOTUS blog about the term that just wrapped up. Uh, we were just talking a little bit about, about Elena Kagan. I, I wonder if we could just kind of get your thoughts uh Get the thoughts of each of you on on that uh, process and and what you think is likely to come out of that. Uh, Amy, let's start with you. Well, I think the process, perhaps it was slightly more substantive than people were expecting it to be, but that is mostly because we all had such low expectations. Um, You know, Elena Kagan was charming. I think that she confirmed that she is very smart and intellectually has the firepower to be on the court. So I don't think there's going to be a lot of sort of teeth gnashing from the Republicans about the idea that if she's somehow not qualified to be on the court because she lacks judicial experience or lacks experience as a lawyer. Um, you know, I think in the end it's going to be a, a very partisan vote. I think that there were there were some good questions that were put to her by some of the Republican senators. John Cornyn and John Kyle were really trying to get at the substance of of some of her views. And then on the Democratic side, Senator Arlen Specter was really trying to talk to her about substance as well and was extremely frustrated that she was not uh, willing to answer his questions and engage engage with him on the substance of her views. So I think it's going to boil down to a, a very partisan vote. I think that there are 59 Democratic senators. She could well lose Arlen Specter's vote, but gain the votes of Lindsey Graham, who was was quite forthcoming during the confirmation hearings. You know, he essentially said to her, "Look, you're a liberal. The president won the election, and so he gets to appoint within reason whoever he wants, and and I respect that. And I expect she'll also get the votes from the two senators from Maine." Uh, Collins and Olympia, Susan Collins and Olympia Snow. But I don't think she's going to get, you know, much over 65 votes simply because the process has become so partisan. I may be the only person in America who thinks the confirmation process is not broken. Um, I think that uh, people say we want to hear real substance in these confirmation hearings. We want to have a substantive debate in these Senate hearings about judicial philosophies, about the nature of judging. I don't know about you, but I, I don't see too many substantive debates coming out of that lot generally. Um, I don't want them to take judicial philosophy and important constitutional interpretive principles and render them susceptible to the same kind of political grandstanding that we see from elected officials. Um, I think look at what happened in the Senate hearings uh, to the legacy of Justice Thurgood Marshall. Maybe 
one of the top three legal minds ever to influence American law. And yet, uh, senators um, showed tremendous disrespect for his legacy, um, uh, basically called him way out of the mainstream, accused him of activism. I'm sorry, when you grow up in a segregated world of the South, you better be a judicial activist because the court didn't believe that the Equal Protection Clause had the kind of meaning that it should have had, that it was intended to have, and that all Americans today agree it should have. So uh, I don't trust them to have that kind of um, very thoughtful, substantive discussion about judicial philosophy in a way that's edifying, meaningful, or helpful to the American people. Uh, as a constitutional law professor, my attitude is sort of keep your grimy hands off my judicial <laughs> philosophy. Uh, and I also don't think it's particularly helpful to try to figure out her particular views on particular issues. If uh, if they answered those kinds of questions, first of all, it would be contrary to the uh, intent of the framers of the Constitution who talked about that they didn't want the court issuing advisory opinions. They didn't want uh, courts and judges to weigh in on legislation before they had real disputes in front of them. Um, but more importantly, it would uh, we'd end up with a system where the only person who gets through would be the person whose uh, political positions match up very nicely with at least 60 uh, uh, senators. Uh, and, and if you dissented from any major issue to want it for a senator, he would vote uh, or she would vote uh, against you. And then the court is no longer serving as the check on the legislature that it's supposed to because they're only going to put people in office who have now committed to uh, a particular outcome or a particular uh, viewpoint. Uh, I think the way the system work is working is uh, just the way it's supposed to. The president, because of the political theater, the president is deferred to. He gets to have his choice uh, because of all of the research and looking for controversy. That choice can't be a very radical and way outside the mainstream candidate. Um, and so at the end of the day, we get justices that are uh, maybe conservative. you got conservative justices under a Republican president in Alito and uh, in Chief Justice uh, Roberts. Uh, and you're going to get uh, people on the liberal side who uh, under uh, President Obama, like uh, Sotomayor or uh, Elena Kagan. Uh, and that's the way it should be. And we shouldn't know much more about them. And a more detailed substantive debate, I don't think, would be all that worthwhile or edifying. Amy, what's your perspective on Kagan's lack of judicial experience? You know, I think that it was an easy thing for opponents to target, given that everyone who is currently on the court served as a federal appeals court, or everyone everyone is currently on the court because she has not yet been confirmed, and Justice Stevens also served as a federal appeals court judge. But you know, Justice Scalia himself recently said about Elena Kagan specifically, I think that it's great that she was not a judge. We, I think that there are, and I agree with that, I think that there are, you want to have someone who is very well qualified and has the intellectual firepower, but does not necessarily need to have been a judge. You know, some of our greatest Supreme Court justices were not judges before they went on the court. Um, several of the judges, uh, justices who uh, were on the court uh, that ruled on Brown versus Board of Education had never been judges before. Some of them, by the way, had never even gone uh, to law school, like uh, Robert Jackson, uh, who uh, did uh, an apprenticeship. Um, and so Earl Warren was never a judge before joining the Supreme Court. William Rehnquist was never a judge before joining the Supreme Court. Um, Chief Justice John Marshall himself, of course, was never a judge before uh, joining the United States Supreme Court. So the idea that you need 
previous judicial experience, uh, I think, is fundamentally flawed. However, I do think that in the public mind, there has been perhaps less support among the public for the Kagan nomination than there might otherwise have been, because to a lot of common people who don't follow these things very closely, the fact that she's never been a judge suggests perhaps that she's not qualified. Uh, And while I don't think that's accurate to say she's not qualified, uh, it was somewhat of a politically risky move, I think, for uh, President Obama, who perhaps these days needs to uh, retain as many political chits as he can and not spend them uh, uh, perhaps on uh, someone who is going to uh, sort of play into a larger public story being told that the Obama administration is underperforming. Well, Adam and Amy, we've just about reached the end of our program, and it's time now to get your final thoughts and your contact information for our listeners. So, Amy, let's start with you. Sure. I think that perhaps not this term, uh, some of these, but in the, the, the next few terms, you're going to see the clash between the Obama administration and the court continue as the Obama administration tries to pursue its agenda on health care reform. There are already challenges to the administration's health care reform in federal court. Um, those, so at least one of those will almost certainly reach the Supreme Court. Um, you know, they've got the moratorium on deep water drilling, the uh, Arizona immigration law in which the Justice Department is just about to file suit, and then you've also got financial regulatory reform, and I think many or all of these things could be headed to the Supreme Court quite soon. My contact information, I can be uh, be reached through scotusblog.com, which is www.scotusblog.com. Great. Well, thank you very much. And Adam, your turn. Well, I think that Amy really hits upon the larger question of uh, the coming battles between the Supreme Court and the Obama administration. But I want to focus on two other cases that uh, that I think are important for future cases. One was uh, a case dealing with the Commerce Clause, where the court issued a broad ruling in favor of federal regulatory power under the Commerce Clause and under the Necessary and Proper Clause um, in the Comstock case. I think this is, and Chief Justice Roberts joined the liberals in that case, and I think that's an important case for um, the future of the health care mandate, this big issue that Amy was right to point out that's coming towards the Supreme Court. Uh, I think that the court's broad ruling and broad interpretation of the Necessary and Proper Clause very much helps those defenders of uh, the health care law, which is very much going to rely on a vibrant reading of the Necessary and Proper Clause in conjunction with the Commerce Clause uh, to preserve federal power. And then the other issue was, uh, I think, that uh, although it was only implicit in the case, uh, the the important case of the Christian Legal Society against Martinez case, uh, where which held that a public college can refuse to officially recognize a student organization, a religious one in this case, that failed to comply with the college policy uh, that all organizations allow all comers to participate in. And hidden in that case, or embedded in that case, was really a question about the gay rights, about whether this fundamentalist Christian organization could keep gay people from joining who don't uh, from joining their organization if those gay people don't otherwise subscribe to the views of the Christian Legal Society uh, about the immorality of homosexuality uh, and whatnot. And once again, Justice Kennedy sided with the liberals in a case that uh, was not directly on gay rights, but uh, at least implicitly about gay rights, uh, and that could have uh, maybe an important signal for, for instance, the Prop 8 litigation dealing with marriage equality, and whether he would be, uh, once again, the swing vote that sides with the liberals in favor of a broad reading uh, of gay rights. So those are two things that I'm looking forward to uh, in thinking about uh, the future of the Roberts Court. My contact information is uh, winkler at U. 
UCLA.edu. You can also just Google me and come up with my webpage uh, at um, at UCLA Law School and uh, follow me on Twitter at Adam Winkler. Uh, And uh, and I encourage all all your listeners not only to listen to Lawyer to Lawyer, but to follow Amy's blog, SCOTUS blog. It's where I go for all my information on the Supreme Court. Well, thanks a lot. So many, so many cases and so little time to talk about them all. I would also just uh, uh, echo what uh, Adam just said. SCOTUS blog has uh, reams of great coverage and, and just today has a good post that kind of wraps up a, a number of the editorial opinions from around the country on the term uh, and is a good read in and of itself. So I'd like to just add my thanks to both of you for taking the time to be with us today. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Yeah, and mine as well. Thank you very much. And Bob, that does it for this week's Lawyer to Lawyer. For our listeners, remember, you can check out all of our Lawyer to Lawyer shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com. And a reminder that you can find uh, our programs on iTunes and that you can also now earn CLE credit for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer by going to Legal Talk Network and clicking on the West Legal Ed Center icon there, which will take you to the CLE Center. And we'll be back again next week to discuss another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. We'll see you next week. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Gee Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.